Good morning. We'll be in Exodus chapters 13 and 14, so please turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 13. Last week we heard Ben preach from the Passover section in Exodus. And one of the, past, one of the points that he made was this, that God's timing is perfect. I want to elaborate on that or at least add to that. And this morning I want to consider not only is God's timing perfect, but God's way is perfect. Today we're going to be covering the parting of the Red Sea and the deliverance of the people of Israel through the Red Sea and the song that is sung afterwards. Of all the things in this section of Scripture that is mentioned throughout the Bible, one of the things that is mentioned repeatedly is the fact that God delivered the people of Israel by parting the sea. It is referred to in the Psalms, it is referred to in the New Testament, it is referred to quite often. And so we look at this uh, amazing amazing account of God's deliverance of the people of Israel. Movies have been made about it. I mean, how many of you have watched the, was the old Charlton Heston, um, the Ten Commandments movie? So that was kind of, that's kind of a classic. And then others have been made since then. And so we uh, look to what God has done as he delivered the people of Israel from the Egyptians, and we are amazed at his strength. But as we come to this passage today, chapters 14 and 15, and again, this is the parting of the Red Sea and the deliverance of the people of Israel. We want to look at God's way being perfect. God's way is perfect. And this is quite amazing. And for this, I want us to go back to chapter 13 just for a moment. And I have the verses on the screen, but you can look in your Bibles if you want to be able to read them a little clearer. It says in Exodus chapter 13, beginning in verse 17, Then it came to pass... When Pharaoh had led the people, let the people go, that God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest perhaps the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. So God led the people around by the way of the wilderness of the Red Sea. And the children of Israel went up in orderly ranks out of the land of Egypt. Now this is pretty incredible. God has just delivered the people of Israel by great miracles and signs and wonders. And they come to this point. They have left Egypt. And even though they had left Egypt, the Egyptians still were not defeated. And God says this remarkable thing, that instead of leading them directly to the promised land, he took them in another direction. Now, going by the way of the land of the Philistines up to the promised land was much quicker. We know that the people of Israel wandered in the wilderness for 40 years, and that wasn't because it just took them a whole lot of time to figure out which way to go, but God was just kind of working in their lives and ministering to them and, and building them up and doing things for them. And so he led them there 40, for 40 years, but the actual trip might have taken two weeks just to go from Egypt to the promised land. It was quite a short distance. But it says God did not lead them that way. He led them the other way. And that doesn't quite make sense from a human perspective. He's taking them the long way around instead of the direct way. And it says this, that he knew the people were not ready for war. So there was something about the people that made them not ready, and God decided to take them another way. Now, this is pe peculiar. Why is this peculiar? 
Well, because God just went to war against the Egyptians and delivered the people of Israel from the Egyptians. Why are they not ready for war? God is the one who is going to end up fighting for them anyways as they enter the promised land. But this shows us something about God, that somehow the people and where they were at made a difference in how God led them and directed them. And we can see in this not only his sovereignty, but that his sovereignty includes the place where the people were at. And this kind of gives us some insight into the, I think in Romans chapter 8, verse 28, where it says that he works all things for good. And that working all things for good not only is following his purposes, but somehow includes where we are at in our lives. Now, here is the thing. Here's some application of this, some important truths for us to remember as we consider this, that sometimes we just are not ready in our lives for God to do greater things. Now, that's a hard truth to realize sometimes because, you know, we fall upon hard times and we call out to God and we expect and hope and we pray that he will hear us and that he will bring about a great deliverance. And we ought to do that. We ought to go to, go to him, obviously. And we ought to take every burden that we have. And we ought to lay it at his feet and cry out to him from the difficult situation that we find ourselves in. But sometimes God does not do greater things because we are not quite ready for it. It's hard to understand, but this is what he's saying here. When he brings the people of Egypt out of the people of Israel out of Egypt, when he brings them out, instead of taking them directly to the land, he takes them another way because they are not ready for war. Another thing that we can see from this in application is that God does not allow us to face more than we can handle. He said he didn't take them the direct route because they were not ready for war. They were not ready. They couldn't handle it. And this is a truth that we often will share and encourage one another with, that it is true that whatever it is that we face or whatever it is that God allows to come into our lives, wherever it is that he is directing us, he is not allowing more to come upon us than we can handle. As a matter of fact, I mean, here he's actually going in a different direction because they could handle that better than the direct route. And so God does not allow us more than we can handle. And that doesn't mean that it's a better way for obviously going the way of the wilderness and wandering for 40 years is a more difficult path. That's a more difficult path. But it was the path that they were able to handle and, of course, handle it with his help. And then another application that we can take from this is that wherever God ends up taking us, wherever he leads us, is the perfect way for us to go. Whether it's the easier way or the way that we understand or whatever it is about where we are at, it is the perfect way for us to go. And that can be comforting. I mean, each one of these things can be comforting. Sometimes, sometimes we need to grow a little bit in our faith. I remember when I first accepted Christ as my Savior, I felt the calling to preach and to be a pastor of a church. But that didn't happen for many years. And I felt like Moses... You know, Moses uh, tried to take things in his own hands when he was a leader in Egypt. He was 40 years old, and he took things in his own hands, and it just flopped. So then he runs, and he's in the wilderness for another 40 years. And during those 40 years, God is preparing him to lead the people. And that's how it often is in our lives. We want God to do greater things, but he's got some things for us to learn. 
As a matter of fact, no matter where we're at, God is at work in our lives. There is something for us to learn. There is some way for us to grow. There is something for, for Him to do in our hearts and in our lives because He loves us and He wants us to mature and to grow in our walk and our relationship with Him. And so we can be encouraged by this. And of course, God never makes mistakes. Amen? Can you affirm that with me? God never makes mistakes. No matter, yes, I like that. No matter where we find ourselves, no matter where we go, He is doing a perfect work. He does not make mistakes. And that's comforting. We can rely upon Him, even though, if we don't, even though we don't understand it. We can trust in Him. We can just put ourselves into His hands. We know He loves us and He cares for us. And He does not make mistakes. So, you think about where you're at right now in your life. I don't know where it is, and I don't know what it is that you're dealing with necessarily, but wherever it is that you are in your life, it is the perfect place for you because God is with you. Even if you've come here because of something that you've done wrong, His forgiveness is still there, His grace is still present, and He will make things perfectly right in your life. He will work all things out for good, even our mistakes. So praise the Lord for that. So this is a great thing. As the people are coming, are coming out of Egypt, um, in saying that he's taking them another way, he is actually taking them to the Red Sea. So like I said, he has done these plagues and he's, you know, he's let them go out of Egypt, but he's, it's not done yet. There's more for him to do. And he takes them to the sea because there's a greater work that is about to happen. And so that brings us to our second point of this morning. God resists sin. God resists sin. Now, this is kind of interesting as we consider all of this. Of course, you know, we look at the Egyptians and we know that they are stubborn and rebellious and refusing to let the people of Israel go and their sin that is present there. But it's not just with them. The sin is present among the people as well. We're going to see that as we go through this. But in every single case, this truth shows itself forth that God is resisting sin. God resists sin. So we consider this, and as God is leading them out, you look at verse 3. Let me start in verse 1. So this is Exodus 14, beginning in verse 1. Now the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, that they turn and camp before Pi-haharoth, between Migdal and the sea, opposite Baal-zephon. This is God giving Moses directions as to where to go. Look at what he says in verse 3. Um, For Pharaoh will say of the children of Israel, they are bewildered by the land. The wilderness has closed them in. So this is what God is going, he's telling Moses that Pharaoh is going to say this about them. So Pharaoh is watching. He sees the people of Israel. They don't go directly to the land of Canaan. They go into the wilderness. And there he is going to think of them. Now they are bewildered by the land. Now that sounds like a strange word. But it really is this. It means this. That they are, going to, they are wandering around aimlessly. That they have no clear path or plan. They are confused by the wilderness. So he's seeing them go there. That's the wrong direction in his mind. They are trapped by the wilderness. He's thinking they are confused. They're aimless. They don't know what they're doing. Now is our chance. And that's what, hap- that's what it says in verse 4. It says, I will harden Pharaoh's heart so that he will pursue them 
and I will gain honor over Pharaoh and over all his army, that the Egyptians may know that I am the Lord. And they did so. Now, notice it says here, Pharaoh's going to look, he's going to see you and think this about you, and I am going to harden his heart and cause him to pursue you, that I may gain glory over him, so that the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. Now, I have to talk about the hardness of Pharaoh's heart, and here God is the one who is clearly hardening Pharaoh's heart. The Lord did it. In verse 5, it says that Pharaoh and the servants changed their minds about letting the people of Israel go. They changed their minds, and God is behind that. And they come to the decision, well, we're going to go over there. They're in the wilderness. They're trapped, and we're going to kill them all. That was their conclusion. Now, if a lot of people, I mean, you can't pick up a commentary that, uh, you know, when it's addressing this uh, occurrence, this event, and it talks about the hardness of Pharaoh's heart, you, you, you cannot find a commentary that does not address Pharaoh's, the hardness of Pharaoh's heart in some, in some way. It is hard for people to come to grips that God would compel Pharaoh's will in some way, that he would harden him. And we have hard, a hard time as human beings coming to grips with that idea that God might move on his will and harden him in his heart and cause him to do something. That just does not seem fair. But there are two things for us that I would like for us to consider. And the first one is this. When we think about God hardening Pharaoh's heart, we really are making ourselves about the same size as God. So here's God, maybe, and of course we're not God, right? So we're a little smaller than God, but maybe we're like this and he's like this. And how could you do that? That's not fair. This was such an issue all the way to uh, Paul, Paul's time after Jesus in Romans chapter 9, where Paul addresses the same thing. How could God do that? But in reality, it's not us like this and God like this. It's like God like this, and we're not, even, we're not even a speck before him. And the point is this, that we tend to make ourselves a little more significant than we are in comparison to God. And I tell you, we are special in God's eyes, but we are special because God has chosen to make us special before him, and not because there's something necessarily great about each one of us. And so we tend to diminish God whenever we have trouble with him hardening Pharaoh's heart. The second thing, the second mistake that we tend to do is that we don't make sin severe enough. We don't consider sin severe enough when we have trouble with God hardening Pharaoh's heart. Sin is hateful to God and he is holy and cannot be in the presence of sin. And when we say that sin, well, Pharaoh was not perfect, right? But he wasn't bad enough for God to do this. We're really diminishing sin before the presence of God. But, you know, it's, it's kind of interesting when we consider this, because what has the Lord done here? He has killed, the Lord has killed, the firstborn of all the Egyptians, Right? Not only that, what is he going to do? He is going to kill all of the Egyptian army in the sea. And yet, 
We don't get so hung up on God killing the firstborn and on God killing the Egyptian army as we do on God hardening his heart, Pharaoh's heart. Why is that? Well, when we consider that God killed them, well, they deserved it. They were sinners. They deserved the judgment of God. And that's true. But why does not Pharaoh deserve that his will be acted upon rather than him dying for his sins? It's almost as if we think, well, God should have just killed Pharaoh right from the beginning. But that's a harsher way of dealing with him. And it provides no further opportunity for Pharaoh to repent of his sin. In the end, God does kill Pharaoh, and he does deserve it. And he deserves to have his hard heart heart hardened as a judgment against sin as well. Pharaoh is guilty. The people of Israel are guilty. God is huge, and he hates sin, and he is right and just to do these things. In Pharaoh's heart and in the hearts and lives of the Egyptians. Now, I said it's not just the Egyptians that are sinning here because here are the people of Israel. If we look in verses 11 and 12, it says the people of Israel, they find themselves in trouble all of a sudden. They find themselves in this impossible place. They, they have come by, down by the sea and maybe, in fact, they are bewildered by the wilderness. How did we end up here? Whose fault is it? It's Moses' fault. It says, because, they say to Moses, because there were no graves in Egypt, have you taken us away to die in the wilderness? Why have you so dealt with us to bring us up out of Egypt? Is this not the word that we told you in Egypt, saying, let us alone that we may serve the Egyptians? For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than that we should die in the wilderness. Now, this is just foreshadowing of the complaining to come by the people of Israel in the wilderness. They are complaining against God. They are complaining against Moses. They just don't like what God is doing. And it reflects that they have a small, a small view of who God is and what he is capable of doing. And I think sometimes we can get like that as well, can't we? We just find ourselves in a situation. It seems impossible to us. It seems like God does not care for us. Why is he doing all this? Why, I'm, I'm a believer. Why is he allowing this to happen in my life? He's supposed to be hearing my prayers and answering my prayers. Why? And so we can be complaining. And we have to be careful about that. Because anything that God does in our lives, and any grace that he gives us in our lives, it, it's just because he loves us so much. He blesses us by his grace We don't deserve it, and we should be thankful for every little thing that is good in our lives. Actually, we should even be be thankful for some of the difficulties that we face in our lives, because we know what? He is at work. He is preparing us. He is shaping us. He is making making us more like him. He is, it says, conforming us to his image. And he is working all things out for good, right? So praise the Lord for all the things that I'm facing. This is good. God is great. And of course, the most impossible situation, the people of Israel, they came out of Egypt. They were in the wilderness. They were in an impossible situation. The Egyptians were on one side. The sea was on the other side. There was no way from their perspective for them to escape this. 
But the greater impossible situation is the one that people find themselves in because of their sins. Because of the sins of people, we find ourselves in an impossible situation. No hope, no way of escape. There is nothing that anyone can do about the sentence of death over the head of each person because of their sins. That's pretty dire. The New Testament talks about this, of course, when we consider Jesus Christ. In Hebrews chapter 2, verse 15, it says, He releases those who through fear of... Now, here's the part. Through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. This is what sin does. It causes fear and it subjects people to bondage. In the next passage, we we know this verse. The wages of sin is what? Death. We all sin. Therefore, we all have the sentence of death over our heads. But notice, with this sentence of death comes the way of escape. Comes the opportunity for us to walk through this gulf, this sea that has been parted. We have the opportunity to walk through it to to escape and for salvation. And we have the opportunity because of Jesus Christ. So the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's Micah's birthday today. And guess what's going to happen when we get home? Well, he's got all of these gifts that are waiting for him. And he's not getting them because he deserves it. And he's not getting them because, you know, he's such a great guy, which he is. But he's giving them because of those who love him are giving him these gifts for him to enjoy, right? So we, in the same way, receive this gift of Christ, not because we deserve it and not because there's something great about us and not because we look in the mirror and we just see how beautiful we are. It's not because of any of that. It is his gift to us because he loves us. So the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Going back to the verse that we just read, he releases those who through fear of death were their lifetime subject to bondage. He releases us and he has released us, praise the Lord, from our bondage because that's what Jesus does. He has delivered us as we have come up against this wall of sin that we could not penetrate. And that brings us to the next point here. God has done the impossible. God has done the impossible. And so he delivers the people. Verses 13 and 14, Exodus 14, verses 13 and 14 says, And Moses said to the people, Do not be afraid. This is the grace of God here, this passage. Do not be afraid. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will accomplish for you today. He will do it. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you will see again no more forever. The Lord will fight for you and you shall hold your peace. And so everything that God does for the people of Israel is an act of grace. He is going to do it all. And that's what salvation is all about. Being saved is an act of God's grace. He tells them, stand still. See the Lord's salvation. He will accomplish it. He will fight for you. And these truths become so real for us who put our faith in Jesus. We stand still. We see His salvation. He has accomplished it. He will fight for us. He has forgiven us of our sins. He has redeemed us. He has given us the hope of eternal life. 
Praise be to him. And so God divides the water. And in the dividing of the water, there is the need to go through. In the New Testament, it says they were baptized into Moses as they went through the water. Now, just think about it. And, and this is what it says in Hebrews eleven twenty nine. It took faith in God for the people of Israel to move through the waters of the parted waters, right? It took faith on their part. And that's what it says in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 29. And so they believe in God. Thankfully, you know, they remember all of the miracles that he has done just not too long ago. And now he sees them. Uh, they see him do another miracle. They, he parts the sea. And so by their faith, they are able to go through. And so they do. But on the flip side, it took a hardness of heart and a hating of God for the Egyptians to follow into the water, into the parted sea. They really, if, if I was an Egyptian and you said, hey, let's follow the Israelites, and I had seen all the things that God had done, I would have said, no way, you go. You're on your own. I'm not going in there, not for a second. And it just shows the hardness of Pharaoh's heart and the hardness of the people of, Israel, of, the, people of the Egyptian army. They had a hardness of heart in order to follow into the divided sea. I would not have taken one step in there. But they did. And of course, they were killed because of it. So you have faith on the part of the Israelites to go through the sea. You had a hardness and a hateful attitude towards God on the part of the Egyptians to go through the sea. And they paid for their hatred of God. The entrance of sin into the world has backed humankind against the sea of sin with nowhere to go. Its, its death sentence looms over us, ready to strike at any moment. And we feel it press in against us, especially as we age. But God can do the impossible. And by his love for us, he acted by sending his son. And in one stroke of power, he divided death into two, making a way of escape through the waters of death. Jesus has given us the forgiveness of sins and a new life. And if you don't believe in Jesus this morning yet, I urge you, I plead with you that you would turn your life over to him, that you would receive his forgiveness, that you would go by faith through the divided waters there into the new life, the eternal life that he has promised you. Here are some great verses in scripture to remember. John chapter 5 verse 24 says, Most assuredly I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death into life. Isn't that a great verse? John chapter 5 verse 24. Here is one of my favorite passages. Colossians chapter 1 verses 13 and 14. He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of His love, in whom we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins. I love those two verses in Colossians. Here's another verse, Galatians chapter 3, verse 13. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. Great is the forgiveness that Christ has wrought on our part, on our behalf. He has loved us with a love that is incomprehensible. He has loved us beyond measure. He has delivered us from our sins. He has given us the way to eternal life. Praise be to the Lord. And that brings us to our last point this morning, that God is worthy of praise. God is worthy of praise. So we move, the people of Israel, they are delivered 
God parts the sea, they go through it, the Egyptians go through it, but the waters come upon them and they are killed, and the people of Israel find themselves on the other side of the sea, delivered from their enemies. And what do they do? They break forth into praise. They break forth into praise. It says in chapter 15, verse 1, Then Moses and the children of Israel sang this song to the Lord. And you cannot help but find this expression of praise throughout Scripture. When God does something great, there is a response of praise. We see it over and over again. In all of the accounts of God's deliverance, there are many songs in the Bible following such deliverance. Not only that, there is a whole book, a whole book the book of Psalms, that is filled with praises to God for the great and mighty things that he has done. And as we come to this song of Moses in chapter 15, there are two things about the song that is important. First of all, the people of Israel, they praise God for what he has done. And second, they praise him for who he is, his character. And so I'm going to run through this list really quick for you. So they praise him for what he has done. His people praise him because He has triumphed gloriously. He has acted wondrously. He caused the waters to stand up. He led forth his people. He redeemed them. He guided them. He purchased them. He brought them out. He took them to his holy mountain. Praise be to the Lord for what he did on behalf of the people of Israel. And they also praise him for what he did against the Egyptians. He cast the Egyptians into the sea. He drowned them. He covered them. He caused them to sink like a stone. He dashed them to pieces. He overthrew the Egyptians. He was wrathful towards them. He consumed them. He drew his sword against them. He destroyed them. He caused the earth to swallow them. He causes his enemies to fear. He causes them to sorrow. He dismays them. He causes them to tremble. They melt away. They will fear and be filled with dread. He immobilizes them. Praise be to God for what he does against our enemies. And so we can praise God for his conquering of sin and his conquering of death, for the destruction of the enemy. It is because he destroys the enemy that we are free. Praise be to the Lord. They praise him for who he is. They praise him for because he is, and I'm going to put it in like the, started out, started out in the personal. So I, pr- I praise him, or we can praise him, because he is my strength. He is my song. He is my salvation. These are all in chapter 15. He is my God. He is the God of war. He is glorious in power. He is great and excellent. We sing that song about God being good and gracious, right? You remember that song? Well, not only is he good and gracious, he is great and excellent. He is glorious and and holy. He is fearful, merciful, strong, and holy. Praise be to God for who he is. And so when we come to God, we... It is right and fitting and appropriate for us to praise Him. So find the things that God has done in your life and let there be a song of praise continuously on your lips for His greatness and for His mercy and for His abundant blessings. I'm reading this commentary as we're going through this series on Exodus by Philip Ryken. And he quotes James Montgomery Boyce. He's, He's a famous... A commentator on scripture from, you know, the last century here. And this is what James Montgomery Boyce says about music and praise. He says this, that it is a gift from God that allows us to express our deepest heart responses to God for his truth 
in meaningful and memorable ways. It is a case of our hearts joining with our minds to say yes, yes, yes to the truths we are embracing. What a fabulous quote there. And it's just, it reminds me so much. Um, I'm a Miami Dolphin fan. Until now, I was ashamed to admit it, but I'm on a high right now. If any of you who are following football, I'm like way up here. Now, uh, Steve over here, he's a Baltimore fan, and I like Baltimore. I'm usually rooting for them, but Miami just kind of upset Baltimore. It was like some incredible game there, and I was saying, yes, 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 for every touchdown that they scored. Sorry, Steve. I was rejoicing to the truths that were taking place on the field there. By the way, last Sunday, Steve prayed to, re- to receive Christ into his life. And Steve and Liz and their two daughters are going to follow the Lord in baptism. Now, consider this for a moment. I am watching you, and as I shared those truths with you, You broke into smiles and applause. The heart rejoices to the truths that we love and that are right and good. And that's what praise is all about. So we see just a couple of passages here as we wrap it up in 1 Peter 2, verse 9. Now notice what it says. Talking about us and our salvation. You are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people. In order that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his light. Now the challenge for us is to take hold of these truths so much so that it impacts us to break forth in praise. That's why we ought to that's what we ought to do. He has delivered us from darkness to light. Praise be to the Lord. Praise be to the Lord. Yes, yes, yes. He has made us a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a special people of His. We are special to God. Yes, yes, praise the Lord. That is our response. And we have, like I said, we have to get ourselves to the point where those truths impact our hearts and minds and cause us to break forth into joy and praise. Psalm chapter 147, verse 1. Praise the Lord, for it is good to sing praises to our God, for it is pleasant and praise is beautiful. So let us not hold back anymore when we come together and we sing and we have the words of these great and glorious truths up on the screen for us to sing. When we open our hymn books and we see the great truths, let us open our hearts and our minds. Let us sing forth in praise for the great and fabulous things that he has done in our lives. Let us be moved by the truths that we sing for his glory, for his praise.